I'm John. And I'm John. We're classically trained conductors who are also working theater music directors. Each week, we'll tell you a little bit about shows we enjoy and why you should check them out if you haven't yet. This is Musical Minutes with John and John. Hi, John. Hi, John. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be back. It's uh, It's been a hot minute. We've missed you horribly. We've missed you dearly. And it's now going to feel comfortable again. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad to be here. And I'm glad to be here talking about a show with one of my favorite themes, singing and dancing gangsters. And let's be honest, this is not just any singing and dancing gangster show. This is the singing and dancing gangster show. We were talking about it before we started recording. I can't think of another show where you have this many. Like, it's all singing and dancing gangsters. So It really is. Yep. So here we go. Today we are talking about Guys and Dolls. Music and lyrics by Frank Lesser. Book by Abe Burroughs and Joe Swirling. Based on characters from several short stories by Damon Runyon. Guys and Dolls opened on November 24th, 1950 at the 46th Street Theater and closed on November 28th of 1953 after playing 1,200 performances. Guys and Dolls was staged by George S. Kaufman with dances and musical numbers staged by Michael Kidd. Irving Actman was the music director. The original cast included Isabel Bigley as Sarah Brown, Robert Alda as Sky Masterson, Vivian Blaine as Miss Adelaide, Sam Levine as Nathan Detroit, Pat Rooney Sr. as Arvide Abernathy, and Stubby Kay as Nicely Nicely Johnson. What a great name for the actor to be playing Nicely Nicely Johnson. It's fantastic. Guys and Dolls was nominated for and won five Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Actor in a Musical for Robert Alda, and Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Isabel Bigley. It was also the 1950 winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, but was vetoed because Abe Burroughs was exposed as part of the Communist Party by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Guys and Dolls opens in the hustle and bustle of New York City as three gamblers, Nicely Nicely Johnson, Benny South Street, and Rusty Charlie, argue about which horse is going to win the upcoming race. They are interrupted by the band members of the Save a Soul mission, led by the ultra-pious Sarah Brown, who calls for all the sinners to repent and follow the fold. Nathan Detroit is a gambler who runs the oldest established floating crap game in New York. However, due to an increased police crackdown by Lieutenant Brannigan, he's having trouble finding a place to hold his game. The Biltmore garage is the spot, but Joey Biltmore wants $1,000 to let Nathan hold the game. Nathan decides he's going to try and win the $1,000 on a bet with Sky Masterson, another gambler who is known for being willing to bet on just about anything. Nathan comes up with a bet that he figures he can't lose. Nathan bets that Skye won't be able to take a woman of his choosing out for dinner in Havana, Cuba. Skye, confident in himself, agrees to the bet, and Nathan names Sarah from the Save a Soul mission as the lady for the bet. Faced with the surely impossible task of getting Sarah to go on a date with him, Skye heads to the mission to talk to her. 
He offers her one dozen genuine sinners in exchange for a date. The two get to talking and discuss their varying philosophies on how they'll know when they are in love. Sky kisses Sarah and she promptly slaps him in the face. Things are not off to a good start. Meanwhile, Nathan heads to the nightclub to watch his fiancée of 14 years, Adelaide, perform. After the show, Adelaide again asks Nathan when they will finally get married, but gets mad at Nathan when she learns that he is still running the crack game she thought he had long ago given up. Adelaide kicks Nathan out of her dressing room and begins to read from a book about the psychological effects of waiting to get married and what they can have on a lady. The next day, Nicely and Benny are watching Skye and Nathan chase around their respective ladies and comment on all the crazy things a guy will do for a doll. At the Save a Soul mission, General Cartwright has arrived to tell everyone that they will be forced to close the mission down unless they can succeed in bringing in more people. Sarah, remembering Skye's promise, tells the general that she will be able to deliver one dozen genuine sinners. Elsewhere in the city, Lieutenant Brannigan discovers a group of gamblers all waiting for Nathan and his crap game. They con Brannigan by telling him that they are all gathered for Nathan's surprise bachelor party. Brannigan is convinced and congratulates Nathan, who resigns himself to eloping with Adelaide. Adelaide excitedly heads home to pack, and just then, the Save a Soul Mission band marches by. Seeing that Sarah isn't with them, Nathan realizes that he's lost his bet with Skye and faints. That night, Skye and Sarah are in a Havana nightclub. Skye is supplying them both with Cuban milkshakes, dulce de leche, which Sarah does not realize are alcoholic. She gets very drunk and kisses Skye. Skye realizes that he actually cares for Sarah, and he takes her back to New York. As the two wander the streets of New York at 4 a.m., the two confess their love for each other when they are suddenly interrupted by sirens and a group of gamblers fleeing the mission, where Nathan has been holding his game. Sarah assumes that Skye only took her to Cuba as a way to distract her from the game taking place in her mission, and she promptly walks out on Skye. Act two begins at Adelaide's nightclub. After her show ends, she notices that Nathan fails to show up so that they can run away and elope. She realizes she's been stood up again. Back at the mission, Sarah confesses to her uncle Arvide that she really does love Skye, but that she won't see him again. Arvide urges Sarah to follow her heart. Sky then arrives to state that he still intends to honor the terms of their deal and deliver the dozen sinners. Sarah doesn't believe him and leaves, but Arvide tells Sky that he better not go back on his word. Sky arrives at Nathan's crap game to attempt to collect the dozen sinners that he needs. As the game proceeds, Sky gives Nathan $1,000, telling him that he was not able to take Sarah out. Sky decides to make a last-minute bet with all the gamblers in the game. If he loses, they each get $1,000. But if he wins, they all come with him to the mission. Sky wins after an elaborate dice ballet. On their way to the mission, Nathan runs into Adelaide. She yet again tries to get him to elope, but is frustrated when Nathan lies when he says he can't because he has to go to the mission. Nathan tries to convince Adelaide that he really does love her, but he still has to get to the mission. 
As all the gamblers pile into the mission for that evening's meeting, Sarah is stunned. The general asks the gamblers to confess their sins, and when one of them admits the real reason for their being there, the general is happy to see that good can come from evil. Lieutenant Brannigan arrives to arrest the gamblers for their crap game. To prove that they are earnestly participating in the meeting, Nicely Nicely offers up a testimony. Sarah then vouches for all the gamblers present, saying that none of them were at the mission the previous evening. After Brannigan leaves, Nathan confesses to Sarah that it was his idea to hold the game at the mission. He also owns up to the bet that he put Sky up to, admitting that he ended up winning that too. Sarah is surprised to learn that Sky has chosen to lose the bet in order to protect her. So he really must care about Sarah. Outside the mission, Sarah and Adelaide run into each other and the two complain about Nathan and Sky. The two women resolve to marry them and fix their problems later. The show jumps forward a few weeks and Nathan is now running a newsstand and has given up the crap game. Sky and Sarah are now married and Sky is working at the mission. The whole ensemble joins together to celebrate Nathan and Adelaide finally getting married. So I'm a fan of this show. I will admit it does have some of its drawbacks. Now, I'm not going to say that this was necessarily as bad as Camelot, a show we discussed last season, but I feel like at times this book is a little bit of a liability, especially when it's compared to the music. Yeah, the music is really, really great in this show. And we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit, but it definitely feels a little bit unevenly matched with the book in terms of how the show plays out. And I think part of it for me is that some of the book scenes are long and extended and you get taken away from that music and you want to be able to return to that upbeat and engaging format in the whole musical of it all. I don't know if it's necessarily limited to just pure book scenes for me, For me, and I've done this musical a couple of times, so I I may be speaking from from a a jaded place, so to speak. All of the Havana scene could be cut. So we have Nathan who bets Sky to eventually take Sarah on a date to Havana so he can get his $1,000 thinking it's an unwinnable bet. Sky, however, does that. Then we actually get the date, and it's this huge musical montage, though I don't know if that's necessarily the right term, musical sequence, for lack of a better term, where we see Sarah getting drunk, where we see them dancing, she sings If I Were a Bell, and then they come back. But none of that really furthers the plot. There's nothing in there that that makes me think, oh, okay, well, this is advancing the storyline. If it had been cut, I don't know that anything would have been lost from this show. It's an incredibly difficult sequence to put together. The timing is not always the most fun. I'm just not a huge fan of it. And it's it's moments like that. There are these, these moments that when you kind of take a scalpel to this book, you could slim it down by probably 15, 20 minutes, lose nothing of value. And it, I think, would have made the story progress a little bit faster. I I believe you. I'm not as intimately familiar with this show as you are, but I will say that in slimming down the book and making it a little bit shorter, which would not be a bad thing, you can't lose If I Were a Bell, because that's a great song among many great songs. And 
the one thing about the Savannah scene is that it does nicely transition into the moment when they get back to New York and you get kind of two numbers as one that are really my favorites in the show, which is uh, my time of day and I've never been in love before. Like that moment is really, really great. And I think it's a little bit more tricky to get into that if you're not coming from Havana, but probably there's a solution there. Well, I don't know that you necessarily cut the idea of Havana completely. I just don't know that we needed such an elaborate drawn out scene in order to have all of that set up. That's fair. They do spend a a lot of time establishing that Sarah is drunk. It it is. And and I agree. You don't cut if I were a bell. You find a spot for it somewhere. But everything that comes before it, I mean, if I were a bell comes pretty much at the end of the Havana sequence. So you find, you know, you find a way to maybe streamline it a little bit. We don't have a need for all of this build up, build up, build up. If I were a bell and then boom, we're back in New York. Yeah, that's fair. And it's, you know, it's a common critique of the show. The the book Again, not as bad as Camelot, not the best book ever written. But that being said, the two main couples in the show, uh, Nathan and Adelaide and Sky and Sarah, are just four absolutely great characters. And they are true characters and they're fully fleshed out and they're just wonderful. And there are also a bunch of smaller characters in the show that are brilliantly integrated into the story. They have personalities, they have unique ideas, and they have important roles to play in the action that is accomplished in a way that is not always well done in other shows. I'm right there with you. One of the things I appreciate about the characters as well is, as you said, with them being so fleshed out and humid, it lends itself to this idea that there are different aspects of them that can be heightened. So in, in, in my universe, there are three major points for this show. You have the original Broadway cast with the cast that we listed in the rundown. You've got the 1955 um, movie version starring Br- Marlon Brando, Gene Simmons, Frank Sinatra, and Vivian Blaine. And then you have the 1992 Broadway revival with Nathan Lane, Peter Gallagher, Faith Prince, and uh, Josie de Guzman. Each of these productions are about as different as you can make them but i feel like each of the three separate casts are effective in bringing out different aspects of these well-rounded characters so they're entertaining so they're fun i don't know that any one performance is better than the other i think they just end up finding a different aspect of that character and highlighting it for 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 the sake of entertainment I, and I, I'm in love with all three. If you, if you asked me to pick one, I don't know that I could. Yeah, I think, you know, that speaks to some, some credit and merit in the book because there is so much material there for an actor to discover in those characters that you don't have to be those original people to bring something new and to bring something engaging and to bring something worth seeing to these characters, which is really, really great because there are shows that, like, if you don't get, like people who are at least as good or who frankly were the original people in the roles. It's not always obvious what you do with those characters. And I also have to bring up, there's a fifth character for me in the show that is just mind blowing the character of nicely, nicely Johnson. So one of the, the supporting gangsters, I guess is co-gangster assist associate gangster, whatever, however you want to call it has, I mean, 
it's actually a really deadly role because if you find the right charismatic actor for it, he steals the show. I've seen productions of this show where the four primaries, so your Nathan, your Sky, your Adelaide, and your Sarah, were good, bordering on great. But they found literally the perfect Nicely Nicely Johnson. And that's what I remember from those productions. Like, that is a role that is the quintessential scene-stealer, show-stealer roles. If you find that right person, they're going to steal the scene whenever they step on stage, which is dangerous. Well, and quite frankly, there's a little call for that. I mean, I think we both agree that Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, which is nicely sung, is probably the best song in this show. Oh, there's no probably about it. Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat is the best song in this show. I would almost argue that Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat is very possibly the best song Frank Lesser has written. I feel like that's not as bold a claim as it sounds because Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat (laughs) is an amazing song. I mean, that's a really great song, but it's one of of several really great songs in this show. And like we said, Frank Lesser, uh, music and lyrics. And for me, I really appreciate the lyrics in this show. They aren't Irving Berlin, Lin-Manuel Miranda, Sondheim level clever, but they are just really well suited for the characters in this show and the moments that they are portraying. They are smart at times, they're witty, but they never go beyond what the characters would actually say. And I think it's a real credit to his writing to be able to fully embody these characters in that way, in a way that makes them believable as singing and dancing gangsters, in a way that makes them engaging and approachable as well. Oh, I'm with you. And and there are moments that are on par with like an Irving Berlin or a Stephen Sondheim. The very first song in the show, Fugue for a Tin Horns, which is a three-person round, um, as we talked about in the rundown. It's clever. Like that, it's some master wordsmithery there, but also the ability to combine them into the one song, I would argue can match the elaborateness of an Irving Berlin or of Stephen Sondheim. But I agree, there's, the one thing that separates a a show like this from a Berlin show or a Sondheim show is I never feel like Lesser is trying to be overly clever. I feel like, as you said, everything is there for a purpose, whether it's reinforcing a character or an emotion or a moment, everything is story driven. Everything is plot driven. There's never a moment in this show where I feel like Lesser is saying, look at me, aren't I clever? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a very good way to, to say it. Now, I know there's one song in this show that we don't exactly see eye to eye on. I think it's a perfectly lovely song that accomplishes its goal and is is great in the moment. And you seem to to think otherwise. So, John, tell me what you think about the title song in this show. Okay, now we went back and forth on this when we were preparing for this show, and even before we were recording, had a nice little back and forth session on it. I will fully admit my opinion is biased by the idea that if you're going to have a show with a song that has the title in the song, so in this case, Guys and Dolls, the song in Guys and Dolls, that it needs to have a little bit more of a punch, a little bit more of an ability to be memorable. And for me, Guys and Dolls doesn't do it. 
It's a cute song. It's a fun song. Again, the lyrics are clever. They fit the characters. But it always has felt more on a level to me similar to Brush Up Your Shakespeare in Kiss Me Kate, a song that's of secondary importance. It's there to kind of entertain. It doesn't necessarily give you any like plot-driven convenience. It doesn't even necessarily flesh out characters. And in Guys and Dolls, it doesn't do that for me. It's there. It's the basically the entire song is guys gotta like girls no matter how they are. And how they are is pretty cool because guys gotta like them. It's like, okay, that's that's neat. Though I do know we agree that while you love this song and I merely like this song, it's a little weird that they bring it back at the finale. Okay. Yes, we agree on that. Before we get to that, though, I want to talk about you comparing it to Brush Up Your Shakespeare, because I think that's an interesting point. I think it is very, very in line with that song. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a duet between two secondary guys in the show singing about just kind of clever things that really, as you say, is not plot driven. But Brush Up Your Shakespeare is the song for me that gets stuck in my head from Kiss Me, Kate. Like, that's the one that I remember. And Guys and Dolls, among many songs, is one of the ones that I remember from the show. I wonder if, as you just alluded to, they bring back Guys and Dolls as a reprise at the end of the show, and it's the last thing that's sung by the whole company. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, I guess it's a convention at this point in time in the 1950 or in 1950 that we got to have a big reprise of some song. And to be fair, there really isn't another song that makes any more sense, even though this one doesn't particularly make sense. Um, but I wonder if the fact that A, it closes with this song and it doesn't quite feel right to you and I, and B, it closes with this song in such close proximity to um, Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat, which admittedly is a significantly better song, if that doesn't play into making you think slightly less of Guys and Dolls itself as an entity. I think that's fair. I think there's also a little bit of D in the sense that when you compare this song to some of the others, for and again, I'm talking about myself personally. When I compare these to some of the other songs in the show, specifically Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat, Luck Be a Lady, Fugue for Tin Horns, this song is probably about a seven in my world. Those three songs are tens. And as a consequence, maybe they get drowned out a little bit as a, as, as a result of just my, my deep and unabiding love for those other three songs. Sit Down, You're Rockin' the Boat is probably one of the best golden age comic songs written for music theater. It's it's fantastic. It's a solo, but it also effectively uses the chorus. It effectively uses choreography. And I mean, it is the textbook song when you're trying to teach an 11 o'clock comic number at any level. Like, this is it. This is the song you should study. This is the song you should know. Luck Be a Lady is just, I mean, for, forget the fact that it is the ultimate, the like the pinnacle of, of singing and dancing gangsters, because that's literally what it is. I mean, that's it. When you, when, when you say singing, dancing gangsters to me, that's what I always think of is Luck Be a Lady. These are fantastic, well done songs that are written well. And as long as you've got the cast to do it, can just blow the roof off any theater. And so when I compare it to Guys and Dolls, I'm like, yeah, it's, that's, that's good. 
but maybe I'm unconsciously wishing Lesser had brought it a little bit more for that song. And again, fully admit that's a bias on my part and may not even be remotely in touch with reality. And I own that. Well, as long as you own it, John. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything else you'd like to say about Guys and Dolls? No, I feel like I've covered my end. All right. Well, if you haven't heard Guys and Dolls before, you absolutely need to. As John mentioned, there's the original Broadway, there's the the 1950s movie, and then there's the 92 revival. Uh, I will pick. I think you should go listen to the original Broadway, but any of those versions are fantastic. Well, that should just about do it for this episode. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can drop us a line at musicalminutespodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook at Musical Minutes with John and John or on Twitter at Musical Mins Pod. That's Musical M-I-N-S Pod. Intro and outro music, Bebop 25, is provided under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License by Jason Shaw on Audionautics.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm John. And I'm John. And we'll see you next time.